Um, well, we're wrapping up our series that we've been on on marriage and family for the past weeks. And um, this past week, uh, Adeline came up to Jordan with her handout saying, uh, saying she had a boo-boo. And so Jordan's like, oh, you, you have a boo-boo? And she's like, with a really concerned you know, face, nodded. So Jordan took her hand and, and kissed her boo-boo, at which point Jordan realized she wasn't saying boo-boo. She was saying booger. Jordan and I have been uh, married for 10 years this coming January and two years as parents. Adeline turned two Wednesday and it's just uh, been a sweet season, I feel like right now, of marriage and family and not just because the boogers are sweet. Um, it's, been, it's been good. I, I should say there's definitely been seasons and several seasons of marriage where I don't think sweet is the adjective Jordan and I would choose to describe it. But um, God, is, God is good. Um, let me pray for us as, as we jump in. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God, I thank you that the generations of people who have loved you and known you have found a dwelling place in you, Lord. And many generations down the line of people who have loved you and known you, here we are. And we thank you for the home we have in you, God. And we thank you for the future home you will be for our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids, Lord. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, There's a, a church plant that uh, started, I think, maybe 10 years, uh, over 10 years ago in Charlotte. And uh, it was this kind of cool, like, edgy, hip church plant. Uh, a lot of young people, all the leadership was, was young. And um, it was called Renovatus, uh, which is Latin for renovation. And the idea was, like, we're a people under renovation. And um, so it's kind of a church for misfits and all kinds of people, no matter how broken they were. The church just exploded. And um, there was this other church in town that had this sign um, out in front of their church, and their sign said, we're not your grandmother's church. So, so Renovatus decided to put up their own sign out front, and it said, we are your grandmama's church, and your great-grandmama's church, and your great-great-grandmama's church. Um, am I getting some feedback? Should I, we're good? Okay. Um, and I, I love that. I mean, that was a little bit cheeky. I get it. But I kind of thought that was awesome because the other church was trying to distance themselves from their grandmother's faith, right? And saying, hey, we're cool. We're not, like, we don't do hymns. We do hill songs. So, like, we're, we're cool. And I, I like how Renovatus, which was just as, quote, cutting edge, as it were, they wanted the solidarity with the faith, the generational faith. Um, and they championed that in a really beautiful way. Um, so tonight, today we're talking about Mom and Dad's faith, um, among other things. There's this beautiful passage in 2 Timothy where the Apostle Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. And I think this is just a really beautiful moment. I mean, Paul's writing a letter to his spiritual son and pastor in Ephesus, Timothy, and Paul's kind of like reminiscing getting kind of nostalgic over his own spiritual lineage and thinking about his ancestors, his Jewish ancestors who served God, who served the same God that, that he served. 
you know, and it might be easy for, for Paul to kind of be like, well, I have a fuller revelation of God. I mean, the Messiah came in my day and almost try to think he's got something more than maybe his, his spiritual um, ancestors. But he comes into this kind of like beautiful solidarity of like, I'm serving and loving the same God they were. Um, and then he continues on and says to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Check this out. I love this. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. Um, you know, for, I don't know, maybe the past like 15 years or so, it may not be as popular now as it was when I was in like high school and college, but I can't tell you how many times I heard it said um, to people in my generation, like, don't have your mom and dad's faith. Like, you need to own your own faith. You're not trying to recreate your mom and dad's faith. Whatever you do, don't have your mom and dad's faith. I mean, I feel like it was said almost like ridiculously, uh, a ridiculous amount. Like, don't have your mom and dad's faith. You have to own your own faith. It's your faith. Own it. Possess it. It's yours, man. And I think in some ways, passages like this push back on that. And I understand the sentiment there, right? The sentiment in that saying, um, it reminds us of something Paul says in this very same chapter. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, basically, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard it. Um, so obviously faith has to be personal. Within the same passage, Paul's saying, not simply I know what I believe, like I've assented to this body of truths. I know who I believed in, right? For Paul, faith is deeply personal and relational. Um, so absolutely, that's, that's the case. But I think we kind of miss something when we essentially tell our kids, you're not trying, you're, you don't want mom and dad's faith. Uh, you want your own faith. Um, you know, I, I remember growing up uh, and my family had this, this thing we would do that my mom and dad let us in. We'd gather at the top of the stairs, clasp hands, and just shout at the top of our lungs, Jesus is Lord! Caleb was always the loudest, and, and we just like belted out. It was, it was so much fun, um, and I remember just loving that as a kid, and um, you know, in more recent years, I've, I've uh, doubted my faith. Um, I've, I've wrestled over the truth claims of Christianity, still do in many ways, um, and I've continued to ask the Lord, like, show yourself to me personally. Make, make yourself real to me personally, but even in my, my desire for God to reveal himself to me personally, in my faith journey, the faith I'm holding on to is Paul and Lucy's faith. It is. That's exactly what Paul told Timothy. The same faith that dwelt first in your grandmother and now in Eunice now dwells in you, Timothy. Um, it dwells in you now because the object of this common faith is it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, um, and I just want to say here at Fullness, we are your grandmother's church and your great-grandmother's church and your great-great-grandmother's church. That's, that's who we are. Uh, this, this past week, uh, Adeline was in bed with us, and she was squirming and not going down, so we said, all right, you go into your crib. So we put her in her crib, and she cried for about five minutes for, for mom, and um, after about five minutes, I got a shout-out. So she cried for about five minutes for, for daddy. And, and then after that, in, in her desperation, she, she called out for one last savior. She started crying out for Elmo. <laughs> J 
just screaming with sobs for maybe if mom, maybe. And I thought, God, we've got to start teaching this girl about Jesus. I mean, she's already got enough faith to believe Elmo could come save her. Um, I think it's time. Um, I think it's time for, for the same faith that dwells in, in mommy and daddy and in, uh, in Papa and Lulu and, and Tanny and Papa. Aren't those cute, by the way? Those, those grandfather names, grandmother names? Um, to, to dwell in her. Just to put this verse back up again, I just think it's so beautiful. The faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now, that same faith. Um, and maybe uh, the faith that dwells in you didn't dwell in your mom and dad. And if you're a first-generation Christian, then by the grace of God, uh, we pray that, that the faith that dwells in you would, would dwell in, in your kids and your children. Um, and if you're not sure God's called you to have, to have children, then guess what? You still don't miss out on this family faith thing. Um, we don't have any evidence that Paul had kids of his own. And he says to Titus, um, my true child in a common faith, um, which is why we pray with Psalm 90 um, that the Lord has been our dwelling place throughout all generations in this faith family. Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, 32, quoting God's words in, at the burning bush to Moses, I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus adds his own commentary here. He's not the God of the dead, guys, but of the living. He's still Jacob's God. He's still Isaac's God. He's still your great-grandmother's God because he is in this transgenerational family of faith that he is our dwelling. I just love it. So, um. So Genesis 12, is there a ring? Or maybe it's just in my ear. Sorry. I'm getting all kinds of weird feedback up here. If, as long as y'all don't hear it, we're good. Um, so Genesis 12, kind of to the end of the book, narrates this story through four generations. It basically typified by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons with a focus on his son Joseph. And this morning, I kind of want to let... Um, this family's journeys with God and with each other kind of guide our, our time together. So as you know, we've been in this series on marriage and family in which you've gotten a lot of just good practical tools and principles. And really the idea has been so that we, we're not stuck in the same destructive patterns year after year after year after year. Uh, and when Pastor Bart uh, introduced this sermon series to us, he talked about how people will come into his office and... Um, Oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes um, for marital counseling, one person will come and say, Pastor, if you can just fix her, if you can just fix him. Rarely, he said, does someone come in and say, Pastor, I'm really the problem here. Um, And he also mentioned how people will come into his office for marital counseling after having sown years of bad seeds into their marriage and expect for things to get fixed that afternoon in his office. And this series has basically been to say, start sowing good things and invest for the long term into your marriage now. Because even if you don't see immediate results, that, that investment into that relationship, it bears fruit, even if it's this time next year. So that's been the point of this, this series. 
Um, and so with that said, I feel like you've gotten so many good uh, practical tools and principles to chew on. And hopefully you are. Like, hopefully you are chewing on them. You didn't just say, like, that was a great sermon and just kind of walk away. Like, hopefully you, you are chewing on, on all that stuff. You know, everything from, I think a few weeks ago, Bart talking about how to have a good fight to our guest speaker last week talking about, like, drive-in movies in your garage. Um, so rather than give you more practical tools to apply to your life, I've made it my ambition in this sermon to make it as impractical to your lives as possible. And that's kind of like my goal. Um, so, so with that said, um, I, as I was kind of praying about how to wrap up this, this series on marriage and family, I just kind of felt led by the Spirit to consider how, how God's present right now in the mess and, e- and even the dis- dysfunction of our families. Um, so, uh, with that said, I want us to kind of, because actually I, I should say this too, I think it's important we do this because um, this time next year, things will still be less than perfect, right? Even if they are better, and, and we hope and pray that your marriages will be better and your family, things, family dynamics will be better, they'll still be less than perfect. So we st- still need a God who's in our, in our mess. Um, so with that said, let's talk about a highly dysfunctional family. Doesn't that sound fun? Yeah. <laughs> Already, like, your emotional stress levels are soaring. Like, I don't... I don't come to church for this. Um, and, and by that I mean the, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and I mean, like, the, the Jerry Springer show has got nothing on this family. It's, it's out of control. And, and um, you would be like, Gabriel, have you seen the Jerry Springer show? Of course not. I'm a pastor. I only watch Andy Griffith and Kirk Cameron movies, guys. Um, but from what I hear, of course... Um, it's got nothing on this family. So if you think, think I'm exaggerating, I'll let you decide by the end. So the book of Genesis, it opens in, in the first two chapters are just great. I mean, everything's literally perfect. And, and then in chapter 3, we're introduced to um, the fall, right? And we see a, a husband and wife disobey God uh, because they're jealous of God's knowledge. And they're caught. And immediately the happy couple begins blaming each other. The good news, they have kids. And they have a son who becomes a, a farmer and a son who becomes a shepherd. And the, 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 um, the farmer brother unfortunately kills the shepherd brother, ironically because he's jealous of God's attention. There are better ways to get God's attention than killing your sibling. And we see humanity just kind of descending into wickedness and especially violence in the next several chapters to the point where God judges humanity uh, with a flood. And then he starts over again with what? Huh? Noah. Noah and a family. He starts over again with a family. Noah gets off the ark, plants a vineyard, gets wasted on his wine and strips down his birthday suit. Somehow I never heard about this Noah in Sunday school. And his son Canaan walks in, sees his father just naked and wasted. Um, and rather than covering up his father and kind of protecting his father's, what's left of his father's shattered honor, um, he go, go, essentially goes and ridicules his father to his two brothers. And um, I guess Noah's like kind of half awake, kind of half out of it. He, he more or less knows what's going on. So he kind of finally comes 
sobers up a little bit and goes over to his son Canaan and, and just curses him and severely curses him, like even like following generations, uh, which I think is a bit harsh in my reading of the story. What about mercy? Mercy is always an option. Or, or what about Noah simply admitting, I let things get a little crazy last night. I'm sorry you had to see that, boys. Like, <laughs> I thought that was on me. You know, like, he literally could have. <laughs> that was a valid response. I'm just going to be honest. But instead, the Noah story ends with the scene of a father cursing his own son. Enter Abraham. Abraham had this really bad habit of pawning off his wife to the harem of the local king he was afraid of. Just a bad habit. Um, he did this repeatedly. And uh, it's kind of like, wow, okay, well, so much for till death do we part, right? <laughs> like, you understand, right, babe? I'm sure he'll be fast friends with his other trophy wives. Have fun. Um, and sadly, th- that generational sin, it doesn't die with Abraham, right? I, his son Isaac repeats the generational sin of his father. Um, and poor Abimelech, the guy just, even one of the same chieftains just, happens to him. Um, then, uh, but, but I'll say this, in each situation, God intervenes and saves their marriages. It's incredible. God intervenes, preserving the plan of redemption through Abraham's family, in spite of Abraham's family in many ways. So then Isaac has um, Jacob Uh, And Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Later, Jacob has two wives, uh, first Leah and then Rachel, who absolutely hated each other. And part of the reason for that is because Jacob loved his second wife, Rachel, more than his first wife, Leah. And I know I told you that this sermon wouldn't have anything practical for your lives, but I do have one piece of practical advice. Husbands, don't love one of your wives more than your other wives. So... Don't do it. Don't, don't, don't do it. Um, so for those of you who come to church and are like, I got to walk away with something practical, you're welcome. Um, so that's the scene there, and it just causes chaos um, in, uh, in the home. Jacob's wife, Rachel, basically spends most of her marriage depressed because she's so many, 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 many years past before she's able to provide her husband Jacob with the son because she's barren for, for that time. Um, Leah, on the other hand, is this baby-making machine, but she has to live with the painful knowledge that her husband's in love with another woman, who is the, the other wife, who also is, in fact, her sister. So, um, and what happens in that scene is basically, if you've read the story, um, the rivalry between these two sisters who are married to the same man it, it rises to the point where they begin offering their maidservants as concubines to their husband in this competitive bid to provide them more sons. It's just, uh, it's, it's craziness, right? Um, so much jealousy, so much drama um, and pain and hurt in this family. Um, with that said, this is just for, for fun. Jordan and I started watching this show. <laughs> Netflix show called Three Wives, One Husband. It tracks this fundamentalist Mormon uh, community in Utah, and it's just glorious chaos, these households. Um, And, uh, you know, fundamentalist Mormons 
endorsed polygamy and polygamous marriages, and they appeal to Genesis and these stories for support. To which I, my response is, have you read Genesis? <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly a glowing endorsement of polygamy, like by any stretch. I mean, any, anyone writing a book on 10 steps to have a great marriage isn't pulling heavily from Genesis. <laughs> without it being like an awful, awful book. But anyway, the drama continues, right? So Jacob has uh, his firstborn son, Reuben, sleeps with one of his father's concubines, who happens to be his brother, and Naf- his brother Dan and Naphtali's mom. That had to have made things a little awkward when hanging out with brother Dan. And... Um, so it just the, the drama continues. Jacob loved uh, one of his sons, Joseph, more than his other, other sons, which uh, just incites a lot of animosity between the other brothers towards their brother Joseph because he's the one who's most loved. Um, of course, Joseph doesn't do himself many favors either. We have these scenes like in Genesis 37 where essentially Joseph like tattles on his brothers to his dad uh, because several of them are like doing a bad job pastoring dad's flocks. Um, and then we could probably admit that Joseph could have used a little more tact when telling the whole family about his dreams of all of them bowing down to him. And I think the brothers could have shown a little more love by not selling him into slavery. So, so that's, that's more of the scene there. And, and then Jacob's daughter, Dina, is just, there's a story of her just being tragically raped by um, the son of a local chieftain. And in an act of revenge, her brothers, Simeon and Levi, just go on a bloody raid, killing all the men in the town and taking their wives and kids for themselves. So, hopefully that's a good little primer to this this family in Genesis. Uh, There's this great story, true story, of um, a time when someone called the residence of uh, the legendary Alabama football coach, Bear Bryant. And... um, Mrs. Bryant answers the phone and says, hello. And a voice on the other line says, may I speak to the great Bear Bryant? To which she says, you know, you just missed him. He went out for his morning stroll on the lake. <laughs> you know, our, our spouses, our kids, our, our parents, our siblings, they, they see us for who we are, right? Um, they know we're not a living legend. Um, you know, in Jordan's case, she continues to love a very flawed man in me. Um, and as for me, the jury's still out on whether Jordan's even a sinner. Um, <laughs> she told me not to do this, and I did it anyway. Um, you know, I could try to score marriage points by publicly praising Jordan and by being as self-deprecating as possible. Um, and I'm by no means above doing that, by the way. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it's, it's how I, I love this amazing woman in our home and, and in the day-to-day that really matters. Uh, my, my grandfather, who I call Papadi, uh, has this saying that he said about God for as long as I can remember. He's always said, he sees me all and loves me still. I can't tell you how many times Papadi said this with tears in his eyes to me. He sees me all and loves me still. I think it goes without saying that uh, these, fam- these families in Genesis are, are a bunch of flawed people. Um, 
they're, they're jealous, they're manipulative, they're selfish, even violent. Um, and so we, we might, it might be easy to conclude, like, okay, well, man, that, that family was cursed. What a misguided, hopelessly flawed bunch of people. Actually, they weren't cursed. They were blessed, repeatedly blessed. They, they weren't misguided. They were, God guided them in a land they, to a land they did not know and in and out of their, their travelings in Canaan and even to an Egyptian prison for the greater good. Um, they, they were flawed, but they weren't hopeless. I mean, God's promises continue to, to fuel their faith and sustain their hopes. In the, in the midst of all of their failings is God. God blessing, God sparing, God saving, God wrestling, God wounding, God healing, God promising, God loving. And you may say, okay, well, what does all this have to do with with my marriage, with my family? In Galatians, Paul talks about this kind of thing. He says, it is those of faith, that's faith in Jesus, who are sons of Abraham. Good news, you got to get grafted into this messed up family. The one I've been talking about. Um, And Paul has this really beautiful metaphor in Romans chapter 4, where he says that those who have placed their faith in Christ have received a righteousness that is theirs apart from works of the law. And when that happens, when, when you do that, when you receive the righteousness of Christ simply by faith and not by working for it, then what you're doing, Paul says, is you're walking in the footsteps of the faith of your father Abraham. You're grafted in to this family. Because in the midst of your failings is God. God blessing, God sparing, God saving, God wrestling, God healing, God promising, God loving. God's never far from your family. Let me say that again. God is never far from your family. Just as he was never far from this messed up family in Genesis. He's a covenantal God. That's who he is in your life. I've talked a lot about, you know, the dysfunction of this family so far. Um, But there's more to this family than their flaws. Just as there's more to your family than whatever negative things people may say or, or see about your family. There's more to you than that. And one thing I love about this family in Genesis is God will encounter them and they keep doing things like naming the places they've been encountered by God and memorializing those places. So Genesis 26, 16 says, Surely God is in this place. This is none other than Bethel, the house of God. Genesis 16, 13, You are a God who sees me. Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. So the well was called Ber Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. Genesis 26, 22. So he called its name Rehoboth, room, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Genesis 31, 49. Therefore he named it Mitzpah, watch post, saying, The Lord watched between you and me when we're out of one another's sight. Genesis 32, um, 40. He called the place Peniel, Face of God, saying, I have seen God face to face, and my life has been spared. 
So they'd, they'd come, they'd name places, I love that, after God's encounter with them and with their families. Do you guys have moments like these in your families? Places, spaces, times, ways of memorializing God's presence in your family. Maybe it's a place at the top of the stairs where you cry out, Jesus is Lord. Everywhere Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob go, we just read it again and again in Genesis. They're built, it says, and he built an altar to the Lord there, and he built an altar to the Lord there, and he built an altar to the Lord there. This was a family gripped by worship. This was a family gripped by prayer and a sense of God's presence with them in the places they are. Um, there's more to this family than their flaws. They, they are also were, also, they sought to be a, a blessing. Did they cause pain? Yeah. Um, but we also find Abraham praying for the healing of Abimelech's household, of Pharaoh's household. We find um, Abraham crying out for Sodom and Gomorrah to be spared judgment. We find after all of the neighbors of Canaan are conquered by these invading armies, just with 300 men, Abraham goes and saves all of his neighbors, including the people, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and other places. He's giving money to the king uh, Melchizedek. Uh, we find Laban's flocks blessed because of um, Jacob. We find Potiphar's house blessed because of Joseph. We find the entire nation of Egypt blessed because of Joseph. They sought to be a blessing. And I think this is kind of who we are in the world. Do we, do we, are we a broken people? Yes. Do we cause pain in the world? We do. But we're also seeking to be a blessing, just like Abraham's family was. And God is in the midst of it all. You know these verses. Genesis 45, 4 through 5. So Joseph said to his brothers, uh, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I don't know if you guys can see that. Can you all see that? This is a graph. Um, this is a Pew Research Center graph, kind of on the state of, of marriage and families. Um, and it, it traces um, children in the different kind of households they're raised in these days. So in 1960 is what it says there, 73% uh, of children grew up in homes with uh, two parents in a first marriage. And then we kind of see the, the steady decline and rise of divorce um, to where 1980, 61% of kids grew up in a two-parent home in their first marriage. And 2014, 46% of children are growing up in homes with two parents in their first marriage, and the other categories uh, have, have increased, particularly cohabiting parents and single parents. Um, it can be easy to show stats like this in church, um, but I think in some ways showing stats like this in a church service can have the wrong effect because it can subtly say, 
you belong here at Fullness if you're in your first marriage and have children. And if you're, if you're anything like me, uh, when it, this stat went up, and I want to stress this, if you're anything like me, <laughs> um, and you're in your first marriage, a slight swell of pride may have gone up in you. Like, yes, I'm in the right camp. Um, others of you may have thought, as of today, I'm in the right camp. If that ever changed, I'm not sure I'd be welcome here at Fullness. Or if you're divorced or remarried, um, slides like this going up in church might have incited feelings in you like, none of the people in this room know what she did to me. None of the people in this room know what he was like. And of course you're right. We, we don't know the marriage and family stories in this room. But regardless, let's be clear. Fullness is not trying to target a particular demographic, namely middle-class first marriage families. Now, let me say this. We believe that we can champion God's design for marriage, as Pastor Bart did a phenomenal job in in the first two sermons of this sermon series. And if you missed those first two sermons, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those. They were excellent. Um, so we believe that we can champion God's design for marriage. We're going to fight for healthy marriages. We're going to put on marriage retreats. And we can do all that without apologizing for it. While at the same time teaching as a church, as Jesus said, um, that to, to widows, to singles, to married, to divorced, to remarried, to blended families, come that my house may be full, as Jesus said, in Luke 14, 23. Because whenever a church begins sending signals that those who really belong here are people who have their stuff together, families who have their stuff together, that church needs to go back and read about the families God used in the Bible. And you'll find the Abrahams, the Leahs, the Jacobs, and the Josephs there. That's who you'll find. I love this quote by Rachel Held Evans. Actually, let me, it's a long quote. Let me read most of it, and then I'll put the last paragraph up. Rachel Held Evans says, and I like this first line so good and so true. We Christians don't get to send our lives through the rinse cycle before showing up to church. Although we pretend we did. We come as we are. No hiding, no acting, no fear. We come with our materialism, our pride, our petty grievances against our neighbors, our hypocritical disdain for those judgmental people at the church next door. We come with our fear of death, our desperation to be loved, our troubled marriages, our persistent doubts, our preoccupation with status and to image. We come with our addictions to substances, to work, to affirmation, to control, to food. We come with our differences, be they political, theological, racial, socioeconomic. We come in search of sanctuary, a safe space to shed the mass and exhale. We come to air our dirty laundry before God and everybody else because when we do it together, we don't have to be afraid. She acknowledges that not every church is like this. And so she says, 
Imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. I I think that's realistic. (laughs) I think unrealistic would be a church where everyone is safe and everyone's comfortable. (laughs) Imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one's comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth. We might just create sanctuary. Maybe creating sanctuary begins in our families. And it overflows to places like fullness. Um, There's uh, this story in, in my and my family, um, my, my mother is uh, one of five, and uh, her father, uh, my grandfather, Papadi, um, was a lifelong Methodist pastor. And as, as you know, pastors' kids uh, feel uh, an, uh, some degree of like pressure and uh, expectations, like don't, don't misbehave, don't act out, don't do anything that could make your father look bad or uh, you know, bring his reputation down. Um, and so my, one of my aunts went off to college and she uh, became pregnant out of wedlock. And she was just terrified to tell her father about it. And so finally she realized, like, I can't, I can't delay anymore. I've got to tell him. So she calls him up and she says, Daddy, I'm pregnant. And there was a pause. And then he said, I'm going to be a grandfather. I think it's because the gospel found its way into Papadi's heart. Because Papadi could say of God, he sees me all and loves me still. I think this is the kind of family God's interested in creating globally on the earth and in heaven and in your discrete families. Places where we create sanctuary. Be a safe space for your husband. Be a safe space for your wife. Be a safe space for your brothers, your sisters. Be a safe space for your son, your daughter. Be a safe space for your grandchildren. Be a safe space for your mom, for your dad. We're going to come to the table, and um, I love communion. I know we celebrated it last week, and we're supposed to celebrate it monthly, but when I preach, I just want to celebrate communion. <laughs> um, because I think it serves the gospel. Um, a professor of mine said uh, at Beeson, you can't preach a moralistic sermon before the table. It just doesn't work. Because at the table of the Lord, we're confronted with the fact that we bring nothing to this table. It's all been done for us. We can try to become better people. And hopefully this time next year, we are better people. But at the end of the day, he sees me all and loves me still. And I think it's from that place that the gospel transforms us. And we get to continue to be a part of a 
fairly messed up family as sons of Abraham. But God's in it all for the saving of many lives and the transformation of our hearts. Amen. Well, let me invite us to the table um, today. This is the table uh, not of the church, but of the Lord. So come, all of you who have faith in Christ, and join his people in this remembrance of Jesus. Come, you who feel far from God, and you who feel near. Come, you who feel clean, and you who feel dirty. Come, you that have been here often, and you who have not been here very many times. Come, you that have been broken, and you who have been healed. Come, you who have much, and you who have little. Come black, come white, come Asian, come Hispanic, come men, come women, come children who know our Savior, for the sinless life that you should have lived has been lived for you by Christ. And the guilty death that you should have died has been died for you by Christ. We bring nothing to this table except faith. So come with empty and outstretched hands to receive the body and blood of Christ given for you. We'll have the center aisles come here, this aisle there, and this aisle here.